Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class. A society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for the few. Renegade Paradise is a commentary, news, and educational platform based on socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Lowcountry. By sharing a socialist perspective, and by lifting up the voices of our allies and comrades, we hope to create a space for folks in this part of the country looking to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but who might not know exactly where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the working class left. What unites us all is one common goal, and that goal is to build a different world, a better world. I'm CJ Bones, and I'm bringing you another panel discussion today with members of Charleston DSA, volunteers from the Bernie Sanders campaign, and the local Food Not Bombs chapter. We're going to chat about the recent South Carolina primary election results, get into the results of Super Tuesday a bit, and then broaden the discussion uh, to speculate on what comes next for the leftists here, both in the Charleston area and around the country. Uh, So we got a couple of newcomers here tonight. Can uh, we go around and uh, introduce ourselves today? Hello, everyone. My name is Alyssa Albertson. I am a transgender woman living in South Carolina and just trying to make it by as best as I can. Hi, my name is Patricia Cannon Fisher. I am a local here in Charleston, and I am a volunteer for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Awesome, guys. Thanks again for coming out tonight and talking to me a bit. Let's just get right into it. Let's start by talking about your experiences on the day of the primary election, which was Saturday, February 29th. Uh, did you do any volunteering the day of? Did you uh, attend any watch parties? And and maybe give me a general description of what the mood was like. So the day of the election was pretty simple for me. Um, I went down to the polling station. It was very empty in my particular polling station. We were in line for less than 10 minutes uh, to get the ballots, go through the new voting machines, and we were in and out very quickly. Um, I know some other people have said that the lines were very long, but for us, it wasn't a problem at all. We did not end up going to any of the watch parties because we heard that uh, they could have been a little bit more happy, so we decided (laughs) to stay home. Yeah, that's what I ended up doing uh, after uh, I, I... knocked out the other stuff that i was doing that day uh, i just stayed home and watched wrestling and drank <laughs> right <honestly. laughs> uh trish well on the 29th i was actually the sign-in captain at the bernie sanders uh campaign headquarters on rivers avenue yeah, you and had a busy day i had a wonderful day yeah. with i mean literally hundreds and hundreds of beautiful volunteers from all over the world not just here in this country um it was very energetic. Everybody was really excited. Um, as the day went on, um, needless to say, it kind of died down a little bit. The excitement wore off, and uh, we actually attended a watch party in Columbia, and uh, the vibe was very, mm, very let down, sort of. Everybody was sad. Everybody uh, thought that things would, you know, turn out a little differently than they did. Yeah. I could see why, you know, um, I also kind of had a similar experience, like I was pretty active the day of and 
and helped uh, text bank and canvas in the weeks leading up to the primary election. Um, the cool thing to see throughout the process is how uh, upbeat and uh, happy the mood was in those couple weeks leading up to the actual uh, primary election day. Uh, obviously, the results were different than what we had hoped for, uh, but it's I think it's fair to say that there's no reason for us to give up just yet. Uh, our movement doesn't rest on the uh, shoulders of just one person. I know that y'all probably share the same sentiment. We're not going to stop until we win this world for the working class. And uh, so there was a quote posted on the Charleston uh, DSA Twitter account a few days ago, and it said something to the effect of, toughen up, we're going to take some losses, and we got to prepare ourselves for some wins when they come, you know? I definitely think it was a little bit overeager for a lot of these leftist movement in this election to think that we would so easily win four states in a row and just knock out all of the competition. Um, so obviously things are going to be more uphill than that. And I saw somebody say that we're not picking um, an ally, we're picking a target. Yeah, and, yeah. And all this means is that we have to work a little harder to find the target that we want. And if we don't get the target that we want, well, we were fighting against our enemies in the White House anyway. Yeah. How did y'all feel when the results came in? Were you personally surprised or did you have a pretty good idea of what was going to happen? I was definitely surprised. I had been following the polling in the state very closely, and I thought that it would be definitely a pleasant surprise if we had won outright. I was expecting a much smaller margin of victory. I was hoping that we could keep it to single digits and, if necessary, low teens. The 28-point win was definitely unexpected to me, and by the end of the night, I was telling uh, my partner that if if Bernie got over 20% and Biden was under 50, it would be a win. Yeah. I feel the same way. I was expecting Biden to win, but um, not by the margin that he did. Um, it was a surprise. Yeah, um, I'm kind of on the same page all are. Uh, you know, despite his pretty lousy track record, he, he pulled out a, a solid win here in South Carolina. Like we were talking about earlier, there were definitely some polls out there that were, effect, that were reflecting that. Uh, a few days before the election. And let's let's get into that a little bit more. So there was a lot of chatter those last few days before the election that suggested that Biden was expected to do very well in South Carolina. And that definitely ended up being the case. So what are your thoughts as to why he did so well here, but didn't do so well in, say, Iowa, New Hampshire, or Nevada? So I know that this has been said a lot by media outlets already, but I do feel like there is a very significant demographic difference between states like oh, Iowa and New Hampshire compared to South Carolina. Um, I don't want to speculate as to the rationale and motivations of a demographic group that I'm not part of, but polling has demonstrated that Biden did extraordinarily well among minority groups in South Carolina and particularly those over the age of 45. And we need to adjust our strategy going forward to find a way to better appeal to those people. Yeah, and um, to that end, uh, Biden also got some endorsements from several key South Carolina Democrats like uh, Clyburn and uh, my uh, local congressman, uh, Mar uh, Marvin Pendarvis. So uh, local Democrats were definitely turning out and 
voicing their support for Biden. And I think that probably had a significant effect on increasing his credibility here, even more so than his associations with the Obama administration. I mean, all politics, when you break it down, is local. So don't ever let anybody tell you uh, out there, if you're listening, don't ever let anybody tell you that local politics don't matter. Don't let them tell you that state politics don't matter. It all matters. So I can't help but think how this all would have been different if we had busted our ass the past few years, like getting folks into office that were more to the left of, of Clyburn and, and Pendarvis, for, just for example, and, and were putting out uh, endorsements for Bernie Sanders. But that's also a little speculative. You never know how things are going to work. Just remember, Mr. Clyburn is up for election in November. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I did see a statistic a couple of days ago that said something to the effect that 47%, I believe it was 47, high 40s, percent of exit poll respondents in South Carolina said that the Clyburn endorsement was extremely important to them in deciding who to vote for. So endorsements by local politicians and um, people who perhaps you have more of a chance of meeting in person, like your city council members and your governor, uh, are extremely important to winning primary elections. So what did y'all learn from this primary election that you'll be able to take with you into organizing as we move forward into 2020? Trish, you look like you have, uh, you've got some stuff to share with us. <laughs> it's just going to take a lot of work, even more than we put in. Like I said, um, a couple of, like a week before our primary on a Saturday, we actually had 32,000 doors that were knocked. Wow. Um, that's big. That's huge. And to think that it's going to take even more work than that, um, I think we really have to reach out to that disenfranchised group that we're talking about, the younger people, that they truly feel like their vote just is going nowhere. Um, and that's, I think, a lot of times because we do have these um, career politicians, um, like, I'm not going to say the name, uh, <laughs> that's been in there for 28 years. And it's way past time for him to, you know, turn over those reins to somebody a little younger. He's fixing to be 80 years old. You know, it's going to take a lot more work than it than we pulled off here in 2020. I think that's fair. I know that I spent a good amount of my time for this primary trying to reach out to younger people in my social circles and my community as a queer person living in the South and motivate them to actually get out to the polls. I know that I was posting saying, you know, hey, you know, let me know, we'll get you there, I'll drive you, um, reaching out in that very like one-on-one -on -one direct manner, especially among you know, very young voters, like 18, 19, there's definitely a feeling that their vote just doesn't matter at all. You know, the system <clears throat> is so heavily stacked against them that it's very difficult to get them motivated to actually show up. Mm. And even if you're able to get one or two kids to show up to the polls, that's not the numbers that we need. So yeah. I feel like we really need to readjust how we're approaching this and find a way to really inspire people and that's going to come from somebody smarter than I am. I, I don't have the answer. And I feel like the other major demographic that we need to find a way to appeal to, because I feel like the leftist movement so often demonizes 
55, 65, 75 year old people, you know, the, the okay boomer thing, which yeah, yeah. I think is, you know, fine here and there. It's a meme, whatever. <laughs> but at the same time, those are people too. And their votes, they, they vote. Those people are very active in their local communities in elections and they have the connections to influence things in a way that an 18 or 20 year old doesn't have the ability to do. And I'm only 27. I don't know what makes those people tick. And I wish that I knew a way to reach out to that demographic group. But right. someone's going to have to find a way to do so because we can't win without them. Right. Yeah. And and um, for a little transparency sake, we've got a pretty we got a pretty full range of folks here in the room tonight. So uh, that all that being said, yeah, you're totally right. Uh, there is definitely more work that can be done getting more folks not only to vote, but just to engage in uh, electoral politics in general, or, or just really think about where they are under capitalism and how the things that they may have been told growing up don't necessarily pan out when they get into the workforce. I, I do think it's cool, Alyssa, how you found a specific role to fill and and really pushed hard to do that like reaching out to younger folks uh, offering rides to voting locations and trish i think it's cool that you know the way you felt you could contribute is by like doing poll watching like volunteering with the campaign so it really goes to show you that there are a lot of different ways you can uh participate in in helping out the process I personally, like, I worked pretty hard on, like, some art for the local YDSA uh, chapter so we can continue having these sort of face-to-face -face, uh, discussions and, and, and pulling more people in to really rally and really organize for a, a strong working-class left here in the low country. I do feel like that there's a lot of pressure on people to make these sweeping contributions to local... Uh, campaigns and local politicians movements and you don't have to be able to donate $500 you don't have to be able to donate $20 you know you don't have to organize every single weekend you know like there's scales of privilege in our society and if all you can do is help your neighbor get to the polling station that's great yeah um how do you think the narrowing of the democratic field uh, influenced the results of super tuesday so i feel like it actually didn't have nearly as much of an effect as people thought it was going to. We didn't have the result that we wanted on Super Tuesday as, uh, you know, DSA activists and Bernie supporters. But Buttigieg and Klobuchar still got pretty much the same amount of support in the election as they were polling prior to them announcing that they were dropping out of the campaign. So Biden was able to reach the levels of support in these states that he had with as many as 10% of people in all of these states voting for people who had dropped out of the race. So I would say it didn't have nearly the effect that I thought it was going to. Right. For better or worse. I think it fell, it fell short. I don't think that, um, I think people have made up their mind pretty much in what they're going to do. I don't think that, um, these endorsements by some people, I, I know some people are, um, are uh, somebody that we would follow, we would listen to, um, but um, not the establishment. They are who um, has created the, 
the working poor. You know, we we have to bring awareness to them because I, I just think they've lost all compassion. They don't care. They're okay. So, you know. Right. I saw an interesting set of exit polls uh, on Super Tuesday that between like 40 and 47% in most states, not every state, some states had much lower numbers, but something in like the 40% of people actually had decided who they were going to vote for in the three days prior to, to the election. So it's really interesting to me that I, in my activism throughout this campaign, most people that I know know who they're going to vote for and have known for months. You know, they decide within the first two or three debates unless something really major changes. So I'm wondering where all these people who don't know who they're going to vote for until they walk into the polling station are and how we can reach those people and actually figure out how we can influence them. I'm not real sure. Some people know how politics actually affect their life. Some some people, you know, they sit back for many, many years until they start to see things getting really bad and it affecting them. Then they're like, okay, I got to get involved and change some things. Right. And um, I think that's where we're at right now. People are ready to shake it up. Right. And that's definitely one thing that really crystallizes how high the stakes are is when you know bad shit starts to happen to you or to one of your friends or, or loved ones or family. That's one reason I think Medicare for All has such strong support, even amongst uh, folks that necessarily didn't vote for Bernie Sanders over the past few days. Like if you look at exit polling for all the states that voted so far, almost across the board, higher than 50, 55% uh, support for Medicare for all, uh, even as high, high into the seventies and the eighties, uh, in some States. So when your skin is in the game, when you actually have material things to gain or lose, I mean, that'll radicalize you super fast. Uh, and I think it is important for us on the left to understand that and tailor our messaging to, to meet people at that point. Um, and to communicate with them and and empower them and uplift them when it comes to what their daily struggles are like, what their material needs are like. And, and maybe, hopefully, if we are good at uh, if we're good enough at organizing and rallying to maybe meet some of those material needs. Let's talk a little bit about uh, kind of how the centrist candidates are kind of coalescing right now. So I think it's pretty fair to say that it's not really about Democrats versus Trump. There was a lot of that heat early on in the primary, but I think now it's becoming more a situation of the Democrats versus Bernie Sanders. How do folks on the left fight back against a well-funded establishment that would rather turn on a burgeoning left movement rather than make material improvements in the lives of working people? So I think the first thing that really has to be done is we have to convince voters that they have skin in the game because the number of people that I've talked to who really just don't think that it's going to affect them at all is astounding. Now, to be fair, and you can't really have this conversation without talking about privilege, you know, it's white men, white women, upper class people. These are the people who either politics doesn't touch them and no matter who's in the office, they're just going to be more or less polite. 
You know, like Trump's not a very polite person, but he's not implementing any policies that are directly making the life of the 55-year-old white person who makes $60,000 a year or more worse. Man, and, and, you know, add to that a healthy dose of like, you got to respect the office. You got to right. respect the presidency. Absolutely. You don't. No, so, you don't. <laughs> so I feel like especially queer people, um, racial minorities... Women, though, with women, it's a lot more, you know, are you white or not? That's the right. that's the defining line there a lot of the time. The white men, white women, upper class people, we have to be able to convince those people that they do have skin in the game. That, you know, unless you're making millions and millions of dollars a year, these political <clears throat> elite are not on your side. They don't care about you. And your life will be made better by paying slightly higher taxes, but not paying $20,000 a year in healthcare premiums. Right. But until we can get that messaging across to the people who don't actually think that this election is really going to mean that much to them, because honestly it's not, I don't know how we, how we develop the movement that we really need. Right. Because people like me, you know, trans people, uh, racial minorities, things like that, we already know that politics affects us, but we're also a minority, and we have to convince the people that really have a huge voice in our political system that politics also matters to them. It's very hard to convince people that are okay. <clears throat> it is. I have a friend well that um, she's privileged. I mean, who can buy a $40 CBD bath bomb and throw it in a bathtub and take a bath? <laughs> it's like that. But she cannot see past, and I've tried to relate to her on a personal level. I am a woman here in the state of South Carolina that started working when I was 15, broke my neck in 2012. Mm. I, I don't qualify for anything here, and I can't afford anything. On the ACA, they offered me about $380 a month premium. I, I can't pay for that. And without the expansion... Of Medicaid, you know, people are left out. You can, I think that that's a way I'll still continue to try to appeal to people about their vote that, you know, on how it affects others. Right. Yeah. And I think South Carolina was one of, what was it, 17 states that refused to take the Medicaid expansion as part of the Affordable Care Act. Right. So you have folks uh, in certain states, you know, definitely here within the South. Like folks that are predominantly, you know, in uh, African American, folks that are predominantly queer, um, locked out of so many ways to get health care because the state legislature is complicit in in denying them said health care because they they don't want to take it, even though those dollars are already on the books. It's already been earmarked. You just got to take it. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely a lot of like ideological grandstanding going on uh, from folks who supposedly keep portraying themselves as like these sort of hard-nosed, like, I'm good at math and I know how to run the country. You run it by a biz, like a business, but the, the facts really don't bear that out at all. Right. <laughs> so how do y'all foresee the rest of the 2020 primary shaking up? Put on your wizard's caps a little bit and, and kind of predict the future for us here. Okay, so I see one of two scenarios really playing out here. I don't think that Sanders, unless we have a major, major shift in the way we organize and the way we reach people, has a path 
to realistically have a majority of delegates by the time the convention comes around. He is not going to just outright win um, the nomination. Whereas Biden is at the point where if his polling is accurate in the remaining states, it is possible. It's like a 30, 35% shot that he just clinches the nomination based on delegates before the super delegates even talk. So if that doesn't happen, then my thought is that it's really going to come down to whether or not Warren still actually has a shred of integrity left. And I hate to say that, but if she honestly, she, she's going to have four to 500 delegates by the time we get to the super, or by the time we get to the convention. She's going to be able to give those delegates to whoever she wants because she's not going to actually meet their threshold herself. Right. If she truly believes in her progressive policies that she's put forth up to this point and truly believes in making things better for people, she will give those 500 delegates to Bernie, he'll get over the 1991 mark, and he'll be the nomination. If she doesn't, and her pride is too hurt from this uh, election, or she just decides that she doesn't actually stand for anything she says she stands for and wants, you know, political brownie points moving forward in her career, she'll give them to Biden, and Biden will be the nominee. Mm. And honestly, that's the only way I see this shaking up in the future. And it's kind of cynical, but... That's just where I'm at. Yeah. I, I see <clears throat> people really getting busier than they have been. Oh, I, I hope so. <laughs> I see um, it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a, a very large fight. Here's my prediction. It'll be a brokered convention. I hate it, but it will be. Absolutely. Um, and at that point, can I say what I want to? We need to put on a yellow vest and we need to get at it. We need to, <laughs> yes. I mean, we need to, you know, let them know we're not having this. Right. We are here because we have allowed this. I mean, when you look at France, when you look at Puerto Rico, what's wrong with us? Why do we sit here and take this? And I really think that it will take a very large movement of people that are willing to get up and get out of their comfort zone. And really fight for what's right for all of society. There, there was like a lot going on in that last sort of uh, mm -hmm. question, like a lot of uh, you know, kind of hard, hard-nosed analysis from Alyssa, and then like Trish, you kind of came in with like some heat there toward the end. <laughs> I like that. Viva Revolution! Where's my Kalashnikov? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so we are about to wrap up for the evening, y'all. Um, uh, I'm just going to ask you one more question and we'll kind of riff on it for a little bit and uh, then we'll call it a night. Uh, what are some important takeaways for uh, the working class left after this election? The one thing that I feel like is always the biggest takeaway for the working class left that I desperately wish we could get more people to understand and that I pound into the heads of everyone I meet, these people are not on your side. They do not support you. They are looking after their best interests for them their families and their, you know, wealth for generations to come. And the only way that we're going to not have people dying due to lack of insulin, people never being able to do anything with their lives because they're crippled by, you know, medical debt or student loan debt that we were told by our parents 20 years ago that we wouldn't get jobs unless we went to college. And now here we are, you know, um, the only way we're going to break free of any of this is to realize that these people are not on our side and actually stand up and tell them 
what we want and what they're going to have to give us if they want to keep all their fancy cars and big houses. Nice. Alyssa is 100% correct. Um, so many people just really believe that politically a person will tell you a thing. They can tell you a lot of things. Liz is good at that. Um, <laughs> but um, you have to dig a little deeper and you have to look at that voting history and how it does affect you. So like I said, some people don't understand, like with the expansion of Medicaid, you have to be deemed disabled or you have to have children underneath the age of 18 years old living in your house that came from your body, can't be your stepchild, or you don't get any. It doesn't matter how poor you are. And we need to stand up and fight for those people that need those assistance programs and that people that are already privileged, they're standing in the way of. It's very sad. Right. I'd like to uh, quote uh, from Mao Tung's A Single Spark Can Start a Prairie Fire. This is a quote that I think applies very well to the current state of where we are in, in the United States right now, especially among the left. Uh, quote, this, the enemy advances, we retreat. The enemy camps, we harass. The enemy tires, we attack. The enemy retreats, we pursue. And to me, this means that we need to be aware that we're going to lose uh, at times. And, and we may lose a lot in the months and years moving forward. Um, and it's going to suck. It's not going to be fun. Nobody likes losing, especially after you've worked so fucking hard. There are just certain things that no matter how hard we work, we can't control. Uh, but what we can do is we can always adjust our tactics and always move forward. And I think it's pretty fair to say that the left is pretty good at that. Like, we're pretty good at adjusting our tactics uh, based on real uh, conditions on the ground and acting accordingly. What What's a little more elusive compared to that is just maintaining that level of positivity and energy uh, and using that energy to go out and win the next one. I think it's fair to say that our opponents have more money and power and connections than we do. But what we have is we have ideas that resonate with people and, and discuss on a very basic, very human level uh, how to meet their material needs. And that is a tremendously motivating force. Uh, but what we need to decide in moments like this is if we have the determination to take those ideas and make them a reality. And I think we do. And and I don't want to be too optimistic, but I think we're going to win uh, in 2020 and beyond. I want to thank both of y'all for coming in and, and hanging out with me today and sharing your stories. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I hope we can have y'all back again in the studio uh, really soon. That'd be fun. Awesome. Um, and to those of y'all listening out there, it's important to remember that this fight never ends. We've got to gain ground and we've got to hold it. The economic engine of this country does not run without us. And I think 2020 and beyond, we'll start to see us reclaiming our power and reasserting what is rightfully ours. So this is CJ Bones, along with Trish and Alyssa, reminding you that we have a world to win in the voting booth, in our workplaces, on our college campuses, in our city council meetings, and out on the streets. Let's take it back. Can I get a solidarity forever? Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity Power forever. Power to the people. Power to the people. Trans rights are human rights. Fuck yes. That's right. Trans rights are human rights. By the power of Grayskull. I just, I just had to throw I just had to throw one in there. Wait, wait, that's from He-Man, isn't it? <laughs> this is CJ Bones, y'all be good. Stand up, all victims of oppression. For the tyrant
Yeah. 